Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, today. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, We Will See His Face. Have you ever wondered what heaven will be like? Have you ever spent the time in the study to build within your own heart a longing for your final abode? Listen, I know all sorts of people who are longing for, you know, financial independence, and they tell me what their life is going to be like when they're no longer required to work a regular job. You see, they spend their inner life creating a picture of what they're going to look like and what they're longing for today. And I know of individuals who have in their minds a dream home that they're one day going to build. I know of people who tell me what they're going to do when they're given the freedom to travel the globe. And I know of people who tell me of a dream of spending each winter in a warm part of the world. I know of people who dream about a career that they're attempting to achieve. I know of people who tell me they're hoping and dreaming of getting married. See, lots of people have a dream. They have a goal and they're anticipating. How few people are building a dream of their eternal dwelling place? You know, in the case of their other dreams, these dreams may or may not happen. And when they do, sometimes these very dreams end up being what? A disappointment. But in this regard, I have two memories, separated by a number of years, but but they're together in my own mind. One is the memory of a dying man, and the other the memory of a dying woman. As I stood beside the bedside of this dying man, I asked him whether he was thinking about heaven and what those thoughts were like. He told me that he didn't think about it, and and I, for my part, was shocked because he had been a faithful churchgoer all of his life. Clearly, in a world of work and business and family and friends and countless activities, as he now faced the end of the world, he had not come to the thought of the world to come. I, I was amazed. How was that possible? Now, the second is the memory of a dying woman, and I had been called to her bedside by a phone call from a family member. She won't be long, said the person on the other end, and I hurried to the hospital. And I came to the room, and I held the hand of this dying saint. Her body was clearly at the end, and she was gaunt, and her strength was almost gone, and I reached out, and I took her hand. Before I could say anything, she spoke, and words that were spoken in strength, but from a very weak voice. She said, Pastor, I've never been so excited as I am at this moment. You see, I'm almost there. You know, in just a few moments, she was telling me, I'm going to see my Savior face to face. Now, as I looked into her eyes, they seemed to me more alive than I had ever seen in any human eyes before. And and in that moment, yeah, I actually felt that I envied her intensely. I, I envied her just like a poor child growing up in a slum must feel when they look at a rich man driving by in an expensive and high-end luxury vehicle. I envied her. She was so full of hope and so full of anticipation. Her body was filled with joy. Do you long for heaven or are your inner visions of this world? This will make all the difference in the world when you die, but it also makes a profound difference in the way we live now. Now, having asked that question, let me ask the next. What do you think about when you think about heaven? What will heaven be like? Because, as you know, you can't build expectations of a place you know absolutely nothing of. You can't build longing if you've never gazed at a travel brochure. 
And the problem that so many of us have is that we've not been taught about heaven. And so for many of us, whatever it is that we think about, it's, it's based upon conjecture and not on the basis of Scripture. Now today, I'm reading Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, from this short passage, let me give you five descriptors of heaven, or more accurately, I guess, five descriptions of the New Jerusalem. Remember, I've said that the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God to earth, and in this configuration, the boundary or the uncrossable barrier between the city of God and earth is forever removed. And in eternity, we will live as finite physical beings, although we will live eternally. But because the new Jerusalem or the city of God comes down to earth, we see that the nations now regularly go to the city and this becomes their delight. So why can't they stay away? Well, we've already heard its enormous size and its stunning beauty of the gates and the streets and the stones, but John's still not done. He gives us in these five verses, five descriptors of the city. First, John describes what he calls the river of the water of life. Not not a muddy river. This one is clear as crystal. So let's stop here and consider this. Now, a note is in order. The old Jerusalem, or I guess the present-day Jerusalem, has no river. You know, London has the Thames. Budapest has the Danube right down the center. It's very impressive. Moscow has the Moskva River. All of these rivers are central to the life of those cities. I mean, they beautify those cities as well as aid in commerce and so much more. Jerusalem has no river. The reason why David was able to capture Jerusalem in the first place is that his men climbed up a water channel that went out of the city to the Gihon Springs. That is, the city was entirely dependent on an outside water source, and it turns out that this was the Achilles heel of the city. It was much later that King Hezekiah would build a secret, well-fortified underground water channel, well-guarded, to protect the city from the same kind of fate that befell it when the Jebusites ruled there. So, So clearly, the new Jerusalem has something that the old Jerusalem does not have. However, the Garden of Eden had a river. You know, in Genesis 2, verse 10, it says that a river flowed out of Eden, meaning that in some place within the garden itself, there were headwaters. Now, it seems likely that the water must have come from an underground stream or something like that. We're not told. But we also know that in Ezekiel's temple, there was also a river. In chapter 47, Ezekiel tells us that this river flowed out from the temple. It's a remarkable thing. But in John's vision, the river flows directly out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, now, excuse me, but we're going to go on a bit of an excursus here because you might wonder whether both the Father and the Son are sitting on the very same throne. In order to understand this language, let's go all the way back to Revelation 3, verse 21. You know, that passage has Jesus speaking, and it says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, that seems that the one throne is becoming quite crowded, Uh, but there's an image here. Remember, God is spirit, and I'm going to say more about that a little later, but that means that he has no physical form. Sitting on the throne is a symbol of reigning in power. And Jesus says he reigns in power from the same throne on which the Father sits. Let's go forward to chapter 4, verse 2. It says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That, if you remember, is the image of the throne room of heaven. Now go forward to chapter 7, verse 17, where we have a promise to the people of God. It says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. So please notice, where is Jesus? He is in the center of the throne. All of Revelation presents us with a picture of Jesus who is fully equal in authority and in power to rule with the Father. That's essential to understanding the book of Revelation. Now then, from the rulership of both the Father and the Son flows a river, uh, the river of life or the river of eternal life. Now, in the ancient world, when you didn't have, you know, kind of water pipes that flow everywhere, I mean, it became very essential for every city to have access to some external source of water. Water was essential to life. Now, in the New Jerusalem, the life of all people flows from the throne of God. See, that is to say, we don't live forever because we as human beings are eternal or somehow we're indestructible. No, no, we're not. We live because God, who has chosen us and loved us, grants his life to us, and that life flows from his authoritative throne all the way to his people. It's a a beautiful picture. See, I don't know if if we go to the New Jerusalem to, to drink the water or to simply look at it and marvel, but in either case, I know this, that we will want to come to that river or in that river we will find assurance that our God who rules is the very same God who has given us the life of eternity that we enjoy. Sarah wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Sarah, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. said that there are five descriptors of the New Jerusalem, and the first is the water of life. The second is the tree of life. You might have remembered that the tree of life comes from the Garden of Eden. 
You know, Genesis 2 verse 9 says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. So I take it that this tree was the centerpiece of all the trees that were there. And what a shame that Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree and, and not from this one. We do know that Adam and Eve never ate from this tree, for Genesis 3 verse 22 tells us that after their sin, God drove them out of the garden, saying, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So like the water of life, the tree of life is the promise of eternal life. But this tree reminds us of what we once lost, but now is granted. This is the promise of paradise regained. Now, in case you're wondering, our translation seems to indicate that the the tree is on both sides of the river and does seem confusing. And there are two possibilities here. I mean, one is that the street and the river run along with the tree of life that's in the middle between the street and the river. And the other is that the river somehow branches out and runs on both sides of the tree that is in the middle. Now, either way of seeing it, it matches the translation, but in either case, the tree is central to the city, and it would appear that the nations are called to come and eat from this tree, as there is a different fruit at each month. Again, allow me to do a small excursion here. Do you notice the mention of months? And the passing of months is a part of the, the passing of time. I know there are some of us who have been raised to think that in heaven, time will be no more. But actually, the Bible never says that. Indeed, it seems that there is a passing of time. The wonder of heaven is is not only does time pass, but it does so without regret, without anxiety. I mean, how wonderful that we should greet the passing of days with only joy, without a sense that there's something that we've lost. See, our days will never run out. Our, Our life in time will be without regret and without unfulfilled longings. This is the nature of the life that comes from God. Now, the third item in the city also comes from the very same tree of life. It says that the leaves that come from that tree are for the healing of the nations. And at first reading, we might wonder why the nations need to be healed at all, because, you know, after all, isn't sin already conquered? And we also know that no one will be wounded in heaven. No one will be sick in heaven. So why does anyone need any healing? Now, I think that since the leaves are for the nations, you know, I have to imagine that the redeemed of the earth come from the nations of the earth, and they are nations that bear old wounds. And here's the promise. Ancient wounds are healed. Ancient disputes are finally and ultimately reconciled. Did you know that this is not just for the nations? It's also for individual Christians as well. It's a sad part of our imperfect lives here on earth that all manner of Christians have wounded others. Furthermore, I know of children who've come to faith in Christ after their parents have died and who would have wished they would have had the time to reconcile with their parents before their death, but now it's lost. See, I know of Christian workers who have wounded and hurt one another. And in some cases, one side took initiative to harm the other. Shouldn't be that way, but it was. There is a tree in the New Jerusalem where brothers and sisters in Christ will meet, where deep heartfelt forgiveness is sought and it's given, where every wound from this sin-cursed life is fully and completely healed. See, I wonder about a world where all the old wounds are now fully healed, where no damage remains. We will love the New Jerusalem. We will love this tree. Fourth, John adds that there is no curse in the city. 
nothing accursed will ever be there. And then he adds, his servants will worship him. Now, you might here remember Jesus' warnings about the person who, who goes to the temple to worship, but he has ought against his neighbor. Or the Pharisee who gives at the temple, not out of devotion, but to be seen by others. One of the things that embitters some people about the corporate worship of God's people is that so many of us don't approach our worship with purity. Here's a little lesson that we can learn from the story of the Exodus. God brought Israel out of the land of slavery, and he revealed his mighty power, and and he decimated the strongest nation on earth at that time, and he brought Israel to the mountain of God. And there they received the Ten Commandments, and there they received the gift of the tabernacle and the gift of worship. And then they were off to inherit the promised land. And what happened next? Well, next they made a calf idol, and then they found every imaginable way to rebel against their Savior. See, sin is a curse, but in the world to come, the curse will no longer be there. See, I don't know about you, but I long for the day in which I will no longer have to fight against the sinful urgings of my own flesh. There are days when I weary of my own sin. And with Paul, I cry out, oh, wretched man that I am. I want to stop offending my Savior. I want to glorify God in everything that I do in my eating, in my drinking, in my thought life, in my attitudes, and the humility of giving God all the glory. Whenever I accomplish something of worth, may I give God glory. See, when the morning dawns and the new earth is upon us, the curse will be no more. That's a wonderful promise. Now we have left the fifth and most important feature of the new Jerusalem. Our passage says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. See, we do know that in Genesis 3, verse 8, speaking of the Garden of Eden, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. One can only imagine what that's referencing. Is it really possible that in some fashion before the fall, Adam and Eve knew a relationship with God where they saw him face to face every evening? And if that's so, what exactly did they see? Or is this what some have called a Christophany, that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Garden of Eden. Well, I, I just we just don't know. But we do know that in Exodus 33, verse 20, Moses was told, But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then after that, Moses was taken to a place where he saw the, the tail end of God's glory as it passed by. And, and consequently, when he came down from the mountain, his face was radiating from that encounter alone. But the apostle John reiterated that point in John 1 verse 18, where he said, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, of course, John makes the point that Jesus, in his incarnation, has shown us God, but he has shown it to us veiled in human flesh. But he also wants us to know that to see God without the veil, well, that has never happened. Now, the astute Bible reader might wonder, If we should see God's face in heaven, what is it that we will see? Now think for a moment of Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure. Well then, the reason for not making a representation of God is that God has no form. Or as Jesus taught us in John 4, God is spirit. doesn't have physical form. 
well, then how do we see God's face? Well, we know that we can't see the full splendor of the glory of God in this life, but in the New Jerusalem, when we actually see his full splendor, what is it that we actually see? Well, truth be told, we don't know. But truth be told, we will see his full glory, and we will be overcome with the overwhelmingly beautiful attributes of our God. We'll be literally immersed in God, and we will survive. Look, here's something about heaven. You know, once in a while, I hear the silly modern choruses say, you know, God doesn't want heaven without us. Well, in truth, if I had time to explain that, you know, that's just blasphemy. What we should be singing is the other way around. See, we should sing, I don't want heaven without God. It's God's presence that makes it heaven. And so if now you're nurturing a hunger for God, this this aspect of heaven is consuming. I have a picture in my home of a young man arriving in heaven for the first time, and he falls before Jesus, and Jesus wraps his arms around him and welcomes him home. And after all these years, that picture still makes me weep at times. I, I long for that. But we will see God, and like Aaron, who wore a gold plate on the front of his turban to inscribe with the words, Holy to the Lord, so also God's name will be engraved on our foreheads. That is, God has placed his mark of ownership on his people. Now, our passage ends by saying that we will rule and reign with him for eternity, but I'm going to leave that for tomorrow. But for now, let's begin to commit ourselves to nourishing an inner vision and intensely longing for the life that is to come. It will help us to live well, and it will help us to die well. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think it is, when heaven is described so richly, that many of us just don't really nurture a a sense of, of heaven as our destination place? Yeah, it's such a great question. And and Ben, I I don't know completely, but I I have two answers. Uh, One is that there are a great many of us who have put all of our hope on this earth. And it's just true. We have. All of our longings are completely directed here. And and, and that's why we are dead towards what God has for us. And, And I suppose the other is that many of us have not been taught. We haven't examined the passages. And um, I don't know why that is the case, but it is. And uh, so, because of that, uh, never having been filled with these images, um, we're left with just a blank. And so, uh, we really need to go back to these texts over and over again and, and reinforce these for God's people. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb in the Book of Revelation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Revelation 18 to 22 is the passage of Revelation that I will focus on in my fourth and final volume of my series, The Triumph of the Lamb, which chronicles the end of the present age and the creation of a new age in which sin and death and sorrow and evil are forever vanquished. Step away from the uncertainty of life and allow the book of Revelation to present a message of certain hope like no other. As this is the final volume of this series, we want to make it available to you on CD for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for only $75. Either choice includes shipping and taxes. 
And remember, the entire series can also be heard online at backtothebible.ca or by downloading or subscribing to our Back to the Bible Canada mobile app or podcast. To receive your CD series or offer a gift to support this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.